Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints. Episode 36, Guadalupe. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on an adventure through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, we'll be talking about one of the very first saints of the Americas, a man whose encounter with the Mother of God has shaped the faith of millions for nearly five centuries, the visionary of Our Lady of Guadalupe, Saint Juan Diego. The man who would come to be known as Juan Diego was born sometime around 1474 in the land which we now call Mexico. As fans of history will know, this was several decades before Columbus, who would of course land in the New World in 1492, meaning that Juan Diego would spend the formative years of his life in pre-Columbian Mexico. That is to say, he grew up living under the Aztec Empire. We don't know a great deal about Juan Diego's early life. He is traditionally described as a member of the Chichimeca people, though that's a rather loose term in the historiography, referring to a group of nomadic people who lived in the hills north of Mexico City. He is also usually described as a peasant though what exactly that entailed is not clear. The Aztec Empire, like most societies in history, had its rich peasants and its poor peasants, its free peasants and its slaves. And yet, while there isn't a great deal we can say about his early life and upbringing, we can say a fair amount about the world in which Juan Diego would have been raised, because thankfully we do have a wealth of knowledge provided by history, archaeology, and anthropology about the Aztec Empire. The Aztecs, despite popular perception, were not in fact native to Mexico. They arrived from the north, perhaps as far away as the southwestern United States, sometime around the 13th or 14th century AD. They may originally have been related to the Anasazi and other so-called Pueblo peoples of the American Southwest, whose ruins you can see around the Four Corners region of Utah, Arizona, Colorado, and New Mexico. But wherever they came from, and whoever they originally were, the Aztecs arrived in the Valley of Mexico as conquerors. Across the 14th and 15th centuries, they subjugated and displaced literally hundreds of other tribes and nations, conquering subject peoples and forcing them into very uneven relationships of clientage and bondage. The key to their success was their skilled, ferocious, and effective warrior class, who ruled over much of Aztec society coupled with their elite priesthood, whose religion saw the world as being populated by cruel, vindictive, and bloodthirsty gods who demanded conquest and sacrifice of their people. More on that in a moment. The society that we call Aztec was really a complex tapestry of peoples, 
all held together by the overarching rule of the Aztec elites. But there were hundreds of different tribes, hundreds of different nations, speaking all sorts of different languages across the area that we now call Mexico. And it seems that the great majority of them were none too thrilled to be ruled over by the Aztecs. For one thing, in addition to all of its wars and conquests, the empire demanded quite heavy taxes and tributes, including of slaves, from its subject peoples. All this forced labor was often put to public use, building an impressive series of roads, for example, through the deserts and jungles of Central America. No easy feat at the time, especially given that the Aztecs were still technologically living in the Stone Age. They had a very advanced society in many ways. They had some of the largest cities in the world, like their capital Tenochtitlan, modern-day Mexico City, which was one of the largest cities in the world by the early 16th century. Its population numbered around 200 to 400,000 people, far surpassing most of the great cities of Europe at the time. A city that size can only be fed by a very well-organized labor force out in the countryside. Someone has to grow all the corn. Which is made all the more impressive when we remember that the Aztecs were still working with stone and bone tools. They never really developed metallurgy, except possibly for making gold jewelry. And even that may have been borrowed from other peoples in the region. But the working masses of the Aztec Empire were not just put to use building bridges and roads and growing all the food. They were also employed in building temples, whose impressive pyramid ruins you can see today in many parts of Mexico and Central America. Which, of course, brings us back to the most infamous aspect of Aztec society. It's religion. As I mentioned a moment ago, the priesthood who oversaw the intellectual and cultural life of the Aztec Empire believed that the world was governed by vicious and cruel gods. Gods who apparently despised the human race, or at the very least were indifferent to human suffering. Modern historians and anthropologists, for example Peter Wilson, have argued that this distinctively cruel and vindictive sense of the gods was likely inspired by the natural disasters which so frequently afflicted the people of Central America. From earthquakes, to volcanic eruptions, to tropical storms, to outbreaks of horrifying epidemic diseases and parasite infestations, Central America was not an easy place for early humans to live. Whatever their reasoning, the Aztec priesthood taught the people that the hateful gods needed to be placated with sacrifices. Not just the sacrifices of animals that are found in nearly all pagan religions, but the sacrifice of human beings. As the empire expanded, its priesthood demanded more and more sacrificial victims from the conquered peoples of Central America. The Aztec gods, like the warrior Huitzilopochtli, the feathered serpent Quetzalcoatl, 
and the Rainmaker, Tlaloc, thrived on human suffering. They needed to be appeased through the ritual killing, often in unspeakably brutal and horrifying ways, of human victims. I will not go into the details of these rituals and sacrifices, many of which have been preserved in our earliest sources on the Aztecs. Suffice to say that the most popular fertility god, Tlaloc, was said to bring rain to the cornfields only when he was offered the tears of children in pain. I'll leave it at that. Those who have listened to this show for a while will know that I have a generally quite tolerant attitude of non-Christian religions. I try to follow the examples set by saints like Justin Martyr, Thomas Aquinas, Francis Xavier, and others in looking for the best in pagan religions, trying to see what they got right that pointed them towards the ultimate truth found in the Catholic faith. But I have to be totally honest. When looking at the Aztec religion, I find myself at a loss. Don't get me wrong, there was a lot to be admired in the culture of pre-Columbian Mexico. But the religion of the Aztec priesthood was simply demonic. I can't really see another way around it. I've sometimes told students of mine studying ancient history that if you scratch any society deep enough, if you go back far enough in time, you will eventually find some kind of human sacrifice. It's a sad but true fact of almost all pagan religions. From the bog mummies of Ireland to the Bronze Age legends of prehistoric Greece, you can find all sorts of examples of human sacrifice in societies all over the world. But what sets the Aztecs apart is the sheer scale on which they carried out these bloody rites of appeasement. Other cultures in Central America had carried out similar rites and rituals. The famous pyramids of the Maya, which you can see in Guatemala today, like Tikal, those weren't just built for show. But the Aztecs carried human sacrifice to an extreme which almost no other society in Central America or anywhere else in the world has carried it. And that helps us to understand why the hundreds of subject peoples, the various tribes and nations living under Aztec rule, were more and more disgusted by the brutal behavior of their masters who demanded their sons and daughters in sacrifice. Whatever one thinks of the Aztec civilization, it came to a swift and violent end, beginning in 1519, when the Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés arrived on the shores of the Yucatán Peninsula and set out to explore and expand the Spanish Empire across Mexico. The story of Cortés and his 600 men is one of the most dramatic events in all of history. We're not going to cover it in full detail here, but we need to know the outline of the story so that we can understand the tale of Juan Diego 
which relates to it very closely. Cortez himself was a complex and fascinating character, to say the least. Combining intelligence, bravery, and a seemingly genuine Christian piety with no small amounts of ambition and avarice. Born to a relatively poor family of knights back in Spain, Cortes had studied the military arts from a young age, and upon his arrival in the New World, on the island of Hispaniola, today divided between the Dominican Republic and Haiti, he had fallen in with a colonial governor and aided him in the conquest of Cuba, earning himself a great deal of land and a great many native Taino slaves in the process. By 1519, he had built up enough wealth and fame and clouts that the governor asked him to lead an expedition to the mainland, which the Spanish had not yet explored. At the last minutes, in February of 1519, the governor changed his mind and called off the expedition, but by that point Cortes had already assembled his ships and men and was not about to go home empty-handed. So, fatefully, he defied the governor's orders and set sail for the mainland as a mutineer. Upon his arrival on the coast of the Yucatan, Cortes famously wrecked his own ships to make sure that the 600 men he'd brought with him would have no thoughts of turning back. Through sheer force of will and remarkable leadership, Cortes forcibly marched his men up the coast and into the jungle of Central America, battling various native peoples along the way, including the descendants of the Maya, who offered him a tribute of slaves to serve as his guides and interpreters. The most famous of these guides was the Mayan princess Malinsin, who soon converted to Christianity and assumed the name Doña Maria. She is often known today as La Malinche, after a Spanish attempt to pronounce her indigenous name. With Marina at his side, Cortes would go on to conquer Mexico City itself, deposing the last Aztec emperor, Moctezuma, or Montezuma, in 1521. Like I said, we're skipping over most of that story for the sake of time, though it is well worth reading on its own. Far more important to us is what Marina, La Malinche, herself represents. Various historians and folk traditions have regarded her either as a helpless victim of circumstance or as a conniving traitor to her people. But wherever the truth lies, Marina would go on to become the mistress of Cortes himself, bearing him a son named Martin, who is considered one of the first mestizo, or mixed-race people, to be born in the New World. She would later marry one of Cortes' soldiers and spend the rest of her life in Spain. For us, La Malinche represents the new order of things, the new fusion of worlds, which Cortes and his conquistadors were bringing into being. This new order of things was at first unspeakably cruel to the indigenous people of Mexico. Although many of the subjects living under Aztec rule had defected and come over to Cortes' side, 
which had allowed him to conquer the empire so quickly, the Spanish had not arrived to liberate them, but rather to conquer and enslave them. Under the encomienda, or land-grant system, from which Cortés himself had grown rich, native lands were parceled out to conquistadors as their feudal property, and native people were pressed into service as slaves, on Spanish-owned farms and in Spanish-owned mines. Thanks to efforts by the Catholic Church, this cruel system would be brought to an end within a few decades after the conquest. Heroic priests like the Servant of God Bartolomé de las Casas condemned the cruelty of the conquistadors and demanded that the Crown of Spain intervene to protect the rights of the natives, which it eventually did, with increasingly more humane legislation over the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries. But in the first few decades after the conquest, in the 1520s, 30s, and 40s, the lives of indigenous peoples under Spanish rule were incredibly harsh, to say the least. Afflicted by diseases like smallpox and measles, which the Spanish had inadvertently introduced, and to which the natives had no natural resistance, and often literally worked to death by their Spanish masters, cutting sugarcane and mining gold and silver, the prospects of the natives seemed extremely bleak. Into this world stepped Juan Diego. By now a middle-aged man, living with his wife in the village of Cuactitlan, near Mexico City itself. Unfortunately, we don't know what Juan Diego and his wife were named prior to their conversion. All we do know is that in 1524, a group of Franciscan missionaries, known as the Twelve Apostles of Mexico, converted a great number of indigenous people in Mexico to the Catholic faith, and that Juan Diego and his wife Maria Lucia, to use their baptismal names, were among these earliest converts. Several years after his baptism, on the 9th of December, 1531, Juan Diego was traveling along the road past Tepeyac Hill in modern-day Mexico City, but then in the countryside, just outside of town. When he had a strange encounter that would change his life and the lives of millions. On Tepeyac Hill, Juan Diego met with a mestiza, or mixed-race woman, speaking his own native Nahuatl language. Yet he realized that this woman was none other than the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. Our Lady asked Juan Diego to build a church on top of Tepeyac Hill to serve as a beacon of the Catholic faith to the people of Mexico. We can only imagine his haste as Juan Diego raced into town and asked the Bishop of Mexico City, Juan de Dumaraga, for permission and funding to build this church. But when he got there, he was met with skepticism. Now, you may be thinking that the Bishop's skepticism was motivated by prejudice, but that's almost certainly not the case. Juan de Dumaraga was not simply Bishop of Mexico. He also held the formal office of Protector of the Indians, 
a title granted to him by the King of Spain, who took an active interest in the welfare of the indigenous peoples. It was Thumaraga's job to ensure that the natives were not too harshly treated by their conquistador overlords, and to ensure that they were being instructed in the fundamentals of the Catholic faith. He seems to have taken this job quite seriously, and it's unlikely that he would have simply dismissed Juan Diego's story out of hand simply because it came from an indigenous person or a peasant toward the bottom of society. But at the same time, the Catholic Church has a very long tradition of showing skepticism towards supernatural claims. Like any responsible bishop, confronted with the report of a Marian apparition, Juan de Dumaraga asked for proof. The next day, Juan Diego returned to him again and asked the bishop once more for the aid and funds that he had requested. And yet again, the bishop said, Prove it. So Juan Diego returned to Tepeyac Hill, where he again encountered our Blessed Lady. He learned from her that the next day he would receive a sign that would prove to the bishop that the apparition was real. Unfortunately for Juan Diego, when that day came, his uncle, Juan Bernardino, fell gravely ill with a mysterious disease known at the time as Cocolitzli. It may have been some form of salmonella infection, but it's widely debated what it actually was. Fearing that his uncle was on the brink of death, Juan Diego raced to his uncle's bedside, and the following morning ran to Tlatelolco, in the center of Mexico City today, to seek out a priest for last rites. Clearly feeling ashamed that he hadn't followed Our Lady's orders, even if for a very understandable reason, Juan returned home on the 12th of December by another way around Tepeyac Hill, so that he wouldn't have to confess his failure to marry. But she surprised him yet again, appearing along the roadside and gently chiding him for not placing his full trust in her. Am I not here, she asked. I who am your mother. It was then that Our Lady gave Juan Diego the proof that he needed. Upon the crest of Tepeyac Hill, as she promised, he found roses in bright's full bloom. Impossible for the depths of winter. Gathering up these roses into his cloak, or tilma, Juan Diego hurried to the bishop and opened them before his eyes. As the roses fell to the cathedral floor, they revealed on the tilma itself a miraculous image of Our Lady. Sinking down to his knees at the sight, Bishop Juan de Dumaraga accepted the truth. Juan Diego had met the Mother of God. The bishop soon built a chapel on Tepeyac Hill for all to see, a chapel which has been built up today into the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and led a procession there to house the sacred tilma, where, of course, it resides down to the present. 
Along the way, someone who had been injured in the procession was miraculously cured. And meanwhile, Juan Diego's own uncle, Juan Bernardino, had recovered from the edge of death and had encountered the Virgin Mary by himself. The first of many miracles associated with Our Lady of Guadalupe. The name Guadalupe, by the way, comes from the section of Mexico City around Tepeyac Hill. Juan Diego would spend the rest of his life caring for the shrine on Tepeyac Hill before his death at the age of 74 in 1548. Over the next century, devotion to this miraculous apparition and the marvels which it worked spread in the region of Mexico City by word of mouth alone. Until, in 1648, exactly a hundred years after Juan Diego's death, a book by a theologian in Mexico City named Miguel Sanchez recorded the story in writing for the first time. From there, numerous accounts soon followed by other authors, collecting and expanding the folk traditions which had preserved this story in Mexico City itself, and in the process transforming Our Lady of Guadalupe into a popular devotion, not just throughout Mexico, but throughout all the Americas. The fact that there is no clear contemporary written evidence of Juan Diego's life and discovery has led some modern historians to treat the tale with skepticism, a skepticism which bubbled up most clearly in the 1990s, when St. John Paul II opened canonization proceedings for Juan Diego. The Church was eventually satisfied that Juan Diego was indeed a real historical figure, and that his vision of Our Lady did in fact occur. The lack of written evidence for the first hundred years, frankly, isn't all that surprising. It's perfectly normal for popular devotions like this one to be spread by word of mouth and passed down through oral tradition for generations before they find their way into print. And it has to be said that in general, our sources for 16th century New Spain are rather patchy, to say the least. Absence of evidence, as they say, is not evidence of absence. But I do think there's a fascinating and quite strong piece of positive evidence for the truth of this story. And that is the tilma itself. Rather like the image of our Lord on the Shroud of Turin, the alleged burial cloth of Christ, the image of Our Lady on Juan Diego's tilma continues to defy modern science. We simply do not know how it was made. The image was not painted, nor was it imprinted with any technology available at the time. The material of the tilma itself has remarkably not decayed over 500 years, despite being exposed with no glass covering or any other form of protection for the first century of its existence. In addition to that, there are the tilma's famous eyes. Our Lady's eyes on the tilma are made with a level of accuracy unknown to the science and artistry of the 16th century, and beyond that, when we look at them closely using modern technology, 
we find that they contain a level of detail which would be virtually impossible for any artist working by hand, then or now. The eyes, for example, reflect in extreme miniature an image of a man we believe to be Juan de Dumaraga, the bishop, among other things. I'm not going to say that this proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that the tilma and the story behind it are genuine, but I think it provides some pretty strong evidence, which modern science has not been able to explain away. In any case, as I said a moment ago, the Holy Father was satisfied with the truth of Juan Diego's story. And in 2002, Juan Diego was formally canonized a saint of the Catholic Church. I'd like to finish today's episode with a prayer composed by St. John Paul II himself to Our Lady of Guadalupe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Virgin of Guadalupe, Mother of the Americas, grant to our homes the grace of loving and respecting life in its beginnings, with the same love with which you conceived in your womb the life of the Son of God. Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of fair love, protect our families so that they may always be united and bless the upbringing of our children. Our hope, look upon us with pity. Teach us to go continually to Jesus, and if we fall, help us to rise again and return to him through the confession of our faults and our sins and the sacrament of penance, which gives peace to the soul. We beg you to grant us a great love of all the holy sacraments, which are, as it were, the signs that your Son left us on earth. Thus, most holy mother, with the peace of God in our consciences, with our hearts free from evil and hatred, we will be able to bring to all others true joy and peace, which come to us from your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Juan Diego is commemorated on the 9th of December in the Catholic Church, three days before the feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. He is the patron of all indigenous peoples around the world, while Our Lady of Guadalupe is the patroness of the Americas, North, South, and Central. If you'd like to deepen your own devotion to St. Juan Diego and Our Lady of Guadalupe, You'll find prayers and other resources in the show notes. May St. Juan Diego and our Blessed Lady of Guadalupe come to our aid now and always for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless.